This week on Plot Points Podcast, we profile the brilliant, neurotic mind of Woody Allen, Toby discovers that he's been living in a cultural hole, and Mark rants about Sheckman. Sheckman, Sheckman, Sheckman! This is Plot Points Podcast. as I always say. The other two aren't on board with that. I'm here with uh, my co-host, Mary Claire Anderson. Hi. And with uh, our engineer slash producer, all-around great guy, Toby Walwork. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I can't can't match Mary Claire in the the vocal range. I I just want to make sure that my voice is distinct from your voice. So I was was going high, but I think that was a mistake. I think pretty much your voice is distinct. I think that was a mistake on my part. Um, so this week I watched a ton of movies, um, less, a lot less TV series stuff um, because I did a profile on Woody Allen and I went back and watched some of his older movies and some of his newer movies that I had missed. So um, what, uh, what do you guys – I'll talk about a little bit about my experience, but what did you guys watch? Anything interesting? Mary Claire? So one of my colleagues' uh, sons is actually in school studying film production, and he reached out this week knowing that, you know, I was a writer and, you know, a big fan of films in general, and he's starting a screenwriting class, so he wanted recommendations of scripts to read that I thought, you know, would be helpful for sort of an intro-level student, and uh, I, I sent him a number of them, and he was sort of like, oh, I've watched a few of these. The only one he hadn't seen or read was L.A. Confidential, and mm. he was he was sort of like, I don't know, does it, it feels a bit dated to me, and I had a very like visceral reaction to that and was like it is not dated (laughs) like it is a very timeless film i think overall um and so i (laughs) but did he mean dated in the fact that of the techniques or because it takes place in the in the 30s oh 50s right he's aware that it was a period piece when it was made yeah i think for sure i mean i think he just thought it was a little bit older and he wasn't totally familiar with it so he wasn't sure if it was yeah maybe worth his time and i was like Yep, it's definitely worth your time. And so I ended up watching it um, again uh, to sort of better sell it to him overall. But, you know, it's a post-war tale of police and political corruption, yeah, set in the early 1950s, adapted by, you know, Brian Helgeland and the director, Curtis Hansen, from the novel, of you know, James Elroy, same title. Um, and I've read that script a number of times, and I'm always struck by, you know, how engaging it is, you know, just from a story perspective, but more so, you know, a character one. The film has three main characters, um, and each go through an arc as they sort of weave through and around one another, and, uh, and all of those characters are sort of forced into situations to work alongside of one another, um, you know, a lot of great conflict there, but also sort of navigating their own moral codes in a system which they all think they sort of understand in their own way, and so um, so it's a really, really great script overall, I mean, really, really well written, um, as I mentioned, three characters, you know, who all go through their each individual arc, which is insanely difficult to do as a writer um even just having one main character go through you know a consistent arc over um you know over a a script is is really really complex and difficult and so um so i sort of sent my case back over to him and waiting for him to come back and tell me i was right so (laughs) well just let's have his phone number uh, on the air let's get him on the show right now shame him on the air (laughs) 
Now that's a, that movie is incredible because uh, who are you saying are the main characters? You're talking about Ed Exley, Detective Lieutenant Guy Pierce, who is sort of straight, plays it straight, but obviously extremely ambitious in the film. Uh, Russell Crowe's character, Bud White, um, and then Kevin Spacey, yeah. Sergeant Jack Vincennes, who's more you know interested in the glamour and perks associated with being a cop. But again, each go through sort of their arc. Great choice. That's a wonderful. That was that's a great film to send an aspiring film student and to stick with it to try to convince him that you need to look beyond, you know, the last 20 years or so, even the last 10 years. And also it's a great, because it's uh, it's good to aim high. Right. You that know, is like, high. It's like, it is. If, if you, <laughs> if you can get 80% but... that good, that's, that's like an A plus. Yeah. Uh, so it, don't worry it about won, it. And, uh, Academy it won two. Yeah. It won for adapted screenplay and Kim Basinger won. That was the year of Titanic though. Uh, uh, because a lot of people thought that was the front runner when it debuted at Cannes. And then along came Titanic and yeah, Titanic sort of. I like Titanic too. I, I like them both for different reasons. Well, I do, but I, you know, I was late to, you know, Titanic. I was younger, obviously when I saw that movie in theaters, I didn't see LA confidential in theaters. That was an R rated film and I was younger when that came out. So I came back to it late and I was sort of like, why, why didn't this have, you know, or why wasn't I more familiar with it? And then I, as soon as I Googled it, I was like, oh yeah, there's Titanic. After that movie, director Curtis Hansen did Wonder Boys, which I think is one of the most criminally underappreciated <laughs> films. Love that film. And, uh, uh, and he passed away recently, and I, I did it at Eight Mile afterwards, which yeah, another great which, film. Yeah, which was uh, kind of the, the Rocky of, of battle rap in its own <laughs> way. And uh, but uh, Curtis Hansen was uh, more known as a, as a director than a writer, but did a, had a, a long career in both. Well, you know the the funny thing about directors who who don't write or who aren't known as writers is they a lot of times they infuse the writing with a higher sensibility, even if they're not contributing to the script directly. So, what are you watching, Toby? I watched a few things this week, but one of the things that kind of stuck with me is I started watching Top of the Lake. Oh, yeah. Uh, watched it on Zealand, Hulu. Yes, it's New Zealand. It's uh, Jane Campion is the executive producer. She also wrote it. It was uh, BBC, uh, the UK Film Fund, and uh, Sundance Channel. And, I mean, it, a, a lot of people chipped in to make it. Uh, and it kind of shows. I mean, it's it came very highly recommended. I remember when it first came out, a lot of people were talking about it. I didn't get around to it. I'm three episodes in. I think there's six in the first season. Mm-hmm. There's a second season to come. And that stars Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth was, Moss from Mad, Mad Men. Men yeah. And in this uh, flawless yeah, accent. Really you know, no, uh, every, really strong performances so far. It's, it's very interesting. And I really, you know, I know we're going to talk about some other stuff later. But when we talk about things like peak television, and how television has become the, the medium for risk takers. And, and, uh, and they're telling a much different story than you would tell in a two-hour movie. And you're telling a much different story than you would have told in a, in a you know, 1990s recurring cop drama. Right. And um, there's, there's, there's just a lot here. And uh, it, it might not be to everyone's taste because one of the things I, I, was, I was impressed by but not necessarily endorse is it doesn't give you everything uh, ever, you know, at any point, it doesn't really answer questions because before we answer this question, I'm going to give you three more <laughs> questions. And so when you get the answer to that one, you say, yeah, but what about this? Now I want to know about this. And, um, and, 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 and that's done what wrong. That can be very frustrating. Yeah, done, done wrong. Properly, that's a soap opera. Right. Uh, you know, and, and one of the things is, is sort of ironic. The show it reminded me of in a very superficial way, but the same way, is uh, the original Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Because when that show came along, it was like, well, who killed Laura Palmer? Right. Who? And if you ever started watching the show, you were like, that really does not matter. Like, at some point, we'll find out who killed Laura Palmer, but there's so much more here. 
and uh, Top of the Lake kind of does the same thing. It brings us in with one mystery, which, like I said, I'm only halfway through, so I, I don't I don't have it resolved. But it's it's so much more than that. It's like, but look, these people are all damaged, but it's all going somewhere. Um, there's there's definitely uh, just a, a ton of, of of gender politics, passive sexism. <laughs> you know, like people that are sexist and don't even know that they're sexist. Um, uh, Women that are uh, sort of outperforming male counterparts because they have to to be taken as an equal, and, and you know, well, there's there's a lot of reasons why we don't examine that stuff very often. And this film, this show, really, it's very well held together. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I think, think it builds slowly, but it's really, really riveting, and I think it will hold you to the end. And I think yeah. there is a pretty satisfying payoff at the end. I agree. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> well that's it. I'm going to go yeah. right now. <laughs> and I think we're about to see the year of the woman with Wonder Woman kicking ass at the theater, so maybe more of that type of a female-driven narrative is going to be in the works. Well, just as long as we don't get a Black Widow film, because I don't think anybody really wants to see another (laughs) powerful (laughs) woman kicking ass movie. Well, that's what what women were for a long time, was uh, killers and prostitutes, and that was it. So I'm going to pass on speaking to what I, I, like I said, I've been watching all Woody Allen films, and I have a rather lengthy uh, dissertation on Woody, so I'm just going to pass. But just to say that I was really surprised by the film An Irrational Man that I hadn't seen, where he is not in it, he's written and directed. But I thought, just to mention, I I really enjoyed the film, although with Woody, there's always frustrations, but I think I know why now. So I'll leave that. I'll tease that for some other time. All right. All right. All right. Um, so that's, that's what we're watching. Um, I think you guys are continuing to uh, to show the audience what is great television and movies and, and what's available out there. Well, now, if I can just ask, though, um, if we have a listener that's watching something they think is possibly underappreciated, I mean, there, you know, there's only so much uh, media attention for things, but let us know. And uh, if it's something that we can stream or, 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 or we can see it ourselves, I, I'm always looking for good stories and good entertainment. Let us know. And uh, Mary Claire, how could they let us know? Yeah, you can call in, call us at 919-SCRIPTS or leave a comment on plotpoints.com. So either or, uh, but follow through and send us, yeah, your thoughts. Fantastic. So this week I examined Woody Allen, again, thinking I knew a lot about him, but um, there quite a few surprises, I thought. Imagine you're a genius. You start life as a boy named Alan Stewart Konigsberg. At the age of 15, in 1950, you begin writing jokes and you never stop. You change your name to Woody Allen. By the time you're 27, you've written thousands of jokes and gags. According to some sources, 20,000 in 1962 alone for the top comedians of the time. You also work for The Tonight Show, Candid Camera, with Larry Gelbart, Dick Cavett, Sid Caesar, on and on with the best of the brightest of that era, because you're a genius at what makes people laugh, and because you work your ass off. Dick Cavett said of Alan, he can go to a typewriter after breakfast and sit there until the sun sets, only interrupting work for coffee and a brief walk, and then he spends the whole evening working, 15 to 18 hours at a time. Given Alan's work ethic, his incredible seemingly natural wit, and his drive for perfection, the rest, they say, is history. Alan's written plays, screenplays, books, television movies, comedy albums, TV specials, a recent miniseries for Amazon, and articles, cartoons, and captions for such luminary magazines as The New Yorker. Woody Allen is the most nominated screenwriter in Oscar history. His films are legendary, Annie Hall, Manhattan, Hannah and Her Sisters, 
more recently Matchpoint, Midnight in Paris, Cafe Society, and the soon-to-be-released Wonder Will. He's the very definition of auteur. He's the writer, director, star of his films, active in the editing, choosing the soundtrack, initiating the projects, and in many cases, finding the actual funding. He transferred his caref carefully crafted alter ego, the Nebishi Everyman character from his early stand-up comedy days, to his films, taking the lead role and delivering flawlessly both with self-deprecating humor and cutting wit. From Annie Hall, Annie, it's so clean out here in California, Alvy. That's because they don't throw their garbage away. They turn it into television shows. Alan's humor was topical, rarely political, certainly existential and philosophical, and just plain silly at times. From Annie Hall again, after Alvy's just killed two large spiders. Alvy, I did it. I killed them both. Annie starts crying. Alvy, well, what's the matter? What are you sad about? What did you want me to do, capture and rehabilitate them? Alan's filmography is deep, over 76 credits as a writer and hundreds as actor, director, and producer. Except for one film, everything he's written, he's directed. A true Renaissance man, Alan is also a world-class clarinetist. He started young and has famously played in jazz club with legends as he was being nominated and winning Academy Awards. In other words, he doesn't go to the Oscars. He has never once shown up when he was nominated or to claim any of his awards. In fact, his only appearance at the Oscars was in 2001 after the tragedy of 9-11. He came as an ambassador of his beloved New York City, and in true Allen style, he joked about it. Quote, the phone rang and a voice on the other end said, this is the motion picture of Academy Arts and Sciences. And I panicked immediately because I thought they wanted their Oscars back. And the pawn shop has been out of business for ages, so I have no way of retrieving anything. As mentioned, Allen's the most nominated screenwriter in Oscar history with 16 so far. He's won three Academy Awards for writing, one for directing. He's also won nine BAFTAs, which is the British equivalent. His movies have received a total of 53 nominations with 12 wins of various actors, producers, designers, etc. Perhaps a little-known fact is that Allen had his own TV show beginning in 1965 called The Woody Allen Show, uh, where he would intersperse humor with interviews of famous people. On one episode, the politically li liberal Allen and the conservative icon William F. Buckley took questions from the audience. It's on YouTube if you're interested, and it's hilarious because Alan was and still is one of the most facile comedy minds in the business. After the show was canceled in 1966, Alan tried his hand at plays, writing Don't Drink the Water. It was also adapted to film, but not by Alan. He did eventually redo it himself in 1994 for television. Play It Against Sam was his next play, which he eventually adapted for the movies. The Broadway and music movie adaptation of Play It Against Sam featured actress Diane Keaton, who stated she was in awe of Alan and fell in love with him instantly. That would play out again over and over as he cast her in Sleeper, Love and Death, Interiors, Manhattan, and one of Alan's most critically acclaimed and commercially successful films, Annie Hall. His first film, the first film Alan wrote, What's New Pussycat, inspired him to become a director because he didn't like the way it turned out. His first directorial effort after that was What's Up Like Tiger Lily, a Japanese spy film which Alan redubbed with his own dialogue. Truly brilliant, and I'm sure, not sure it's ever been done since. Alan's, Alan's writing style over the years has always involved experimented narrative styles. Play It Again, Sam featured a ghost. Annie Hall, where, Annie breaks the fourth wall, er, uh, sorry, where Alan breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the camera, and also the use of thought bubble subtitles. The Purple Rose of Cairo, which has Jeff Daniels coming out of the movie screen to woo Mer Mia Farrell, even up to Midnight in Paris, where the main character time shifts to different eras in Paris. And yet, Alan does tell many stories linearly with traditional narrative methods like The Underappreciated Irrational Man, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Emma Stone. None of these techniques ever feel jarring or precious in Woody's capable hands, never mind that there is no explanation as to why Owen Wilson in Midnight in Paris is able to travel in time. 
He just is, and that serves the story well. Alan, a one-man movie machine, would also occasionally collaborate with other writers like Mickey Rose and Marshall Brickman. In fact, his most successful film collaboration was with Brickman, who co-wrote Sleepers and the film that would begin Alan's true legacy, Annie Hall. Brickman also co-wrote Manhattan, probably my favorite Woody Allen film, although Woody thought it was terrible and it would bomb. It didn't. But it was Annie Hall that rocketed Allen into the Hollywood elite as a writer, director, and actor. He was red hot in achieving supernova status after the movie went to the top of the Oscars. Annie Hall won four Academy Awards in 1977, including Best Picture, Best Actress for Keaton, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Director for Woody Allen. Woody was almost 40 when he achieved that milestone. Like William Shakespeare, who wrote comedies in his early life and then became a Jacobean disciple and wrote tragedies afterwards, Allen's focus shifted. He dropped the funny man act and started to channel his filmatic heroes like Ingmar Bergman and Federico Fellini. His worldview turned darker, more existential. Some liked this shift, most hated it. Annie Hall was followed by The Brooding Interiors, which received split reviews. It was nominated for many awards, but also lambasted by some of the biggest film critics of the time as being pretentious and plotting. Then came Manhattan. It's not a particularly happy film, although it is very funny, but the cinematography and direction paints a beautiful black-and-white picture of the city that Allen adored. Allen loves to make big cities a character in his narratives. In later years, he would shift his focus to London and Paris in, in the 70s and 80s, but in the 70s and 80s, it was Big Ap- the Big Apple. Manhattan's serial comic storyline is of an older man falling in love with a much younger woman. Unfortunately, this is also somewhat a precursor to what would become Woody Allen's worst period in his life. More on that later. Hannah and Her Sisters was written around this time of Allen's shifting focus, a great movie and a great success. Again, a combination of the humor he was known for and the tragedy leanings he was developing. Allen's output never faltered, but he struggled to find himself creatively during this time. Many pronounced him done, over, fini his best years behind him. Still, he continued to make small-budget films, many times using the same cast and crew, like the old legendary Hollywood directors. Mia Farrow, who would become a huge part of his life, both personally and professionally, took Diane Keaton's place as a leading lady doing 13 films with Allen. In the 90s, Manhattan Murder Mystery and Bullets Over Broadway marked a return of some of Allen's old form. He was back, it seemed, and enjoying good reviews and robust box office. He was living with Mia Farrow at the time in a committed relationship and working hard on his quote-unquote comeback. Farrow was at Allen's home one day and came across nude photos of her adopted daughter, 21-year-old Sunyi Previn. Farrow knew then that Allen was having an affair with Previn. A horribly bitter, very public scandal and breakup was the result. Sunyi and Allen married in 1997 and have adopted two daughters, but at the time it was headline news, and some people tore him to shreds for the perception and some of the reality of what he had done. The negative publicity hurt Allen's career at a time where he was just finding his creative flow again. He stumbled a bit, but recovered with strong films like Matchpoint, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, Midnight in Paris, and Blue Jasmine. I've loved Allen's unique writing and perspective for many years and think he is a true genius. He's redefined film in so many ways, bringing both hilarity and intelligent, accessible, deep thought to the screen. I explored a lot of what I know about existentialism in film because of Woody Allen. I also admire Woody's creative and intellectual courage. Here's a quote from him that sums it up. If you're not failing every now and then, he says, it's a sign you're not doing anything very innovative. I've heard something similar from other successful artists. Following his old advice, Alan has had wondrous successes, and he's also had some fairly spectacular failures. Failing brilliantly is the way I see it. Woody calls himself gloomy. He's admitted to many years to depression. He stated that he sees no reason to be happy about anything, and yet he continues to write movies like Midnight in Paris that ultimately have happy endings. I say he's an optimistic cynic. 
And that constant conflict inside of him is what makes his movies so damned accessible and endearing. As an, an, an acknowledged neurotic in therapy for years, Alan says he values very few of his films and has never rewatched them after their premiere. He struggles with the same issues all writers do, even at his age. Is it good enough? Can I make it work? The litany of neuroses we as writers suffer is in full bloom with Woody even to this day. He said of his recent foray into episodic television with Amazon Studios, which was called Crisis in Six Scenes, that he took no joy in making it. He doesn't know if it will be any good, and he doesn't care if people like it or not. At the age of 81, Woody still explores, pokes, prods, and rattles the doors and windows of the universe for, answer, for answers. Woody Allen makes me laugh, tear up at times, and more importantly, think. His explorations of meaning and mortality, our human failings, and frustrations at our ability, inability to answer any of the big questions with great humor still resonate with me years after I've seen his films. They can be funny at times, frightening at times, but they are brilliant at all times, even in failure. Woody may be a flawed human being, but you can bet he was the first one to say so to himself. Quoting Groucho Mark, Woody says, I wouldn't want to be part of a club, any club that had me as a member. Like all great writers, Alan's microscope is always turned inward at the ludicrous parts of himself, but also focusing on the most glorious he can be while stumbling in that oft-times darkness of our existence. By doing that, he opens us up to our own successes and failings, forces us to examine who we are at the same time we're watching as he and his characters do the same. Woody turns the mirror on himself, but the reflection is of us, humanity, warts and all. Through his work, we need to learn to laugh at ourselves and to not take this life so seriously unless we need to. As Woody says, life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering, and it's over far too soon. The good news is, although the last few films seem to be looking back, Woody isn't able to slow down and is moving forward as he always has. He said, if you focus on mortality, the house always wins, and he won't have any of that. It's my feeling that Woody has looked at the explanations of the afterlife, tried to parse all the great knowledge of the ages, come to no conclu good conclusion, and decided to say, screw it, I'm just going to make another movie. Well, I hope Woody Allen has at least another dozen films in, of, in him. There's still a lot I need to learn about myself. That was a great profile and yeah, reminded me uh, so much. Uh, you know, I have to admit, it, obviously, it's it's long. I know. It's controversial. Uh, and, and smarter scholars than we three can discuss for a very long time, you know, the legacy and that kind of thing. But but uh, Mary Claire. What, what, what's your take on when, 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 when we say Woody Allen? What, what do you think? Um, you know, I think of, and Mark used this word, but an auteur, you know, a great writer, but somebody that really is at the forefront of something unique in terms of storytelling and has been for a while. I'm always excited to see his films, and I think, yeah, some of them are challenging and can be frustrating at times, but I always learn something or take something away, whether it's through how he's written his characters. Um, or how you know the story ties up, or what this payoff is. Um, but I'm a fan. I've been a fan of his for a long time, um, and I'm always one of the first people I feel like in line to go see his new movies. Uh, and they're always coming out. Like <laughs> I feel like there's a Once movie a year. every year, yeah. yeah, for Woody Allen. Um, and so I, they're always films I, I tell people to sort of avail themselves of as well. Like um, even when it comes to you know how he's his take. You referenced this earlier, Toby, but his take on females. And I think it's telling too. I mean, a lot of his. Um, uh, awards or nominations. I mean, a lot of females have taken away <laughs> awards from his uh, from his work. You know, I think at least four or five have won for whether it's Vicky Cristina Barcelona, uh, Bar Bullets Over Broadway, Blue Jasmine, Annie Hall. Annie Hall yeah, especially. And so, um, so yeah. So I think that that's again telling. But that those are some of the words that I, I think of when you and you touched on a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I find that Woody Allen is um, 
you know, when you say auteur filmmaker, for sure. And, and, and growing up and having an interest in the arts on any level, uh, he was very influential on me. Uh, he's in my favorite James Bond movie. Does anybody know which one that is? Casino Royale. That's right. Um, I don't remember that. <laughs> what not, is the, it? Not, not the Daniel oh, Craig okay. one. <laughs> the original Casino Royale. Uh, but but uh, but uh, but I also will admit that uh, you know, with familiarity breeds contempt. We we live in a time when we get to know our artists as people, uh, performing artists, mm-hmm. everybody, and, and 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 like people, they may or may not have flaws. Um, I mean, they, they, they certainly do have flaws, but we don't always know what they are. So I, I know that I've, I've cooled towards him, but also, you know, like any prolific artist, they have uh, phases. They have periods. And, and they have periods, and we just go like, oh, well, this is a great, you know, like, I can tell you when my favorite Woody Allen periods were, but they're broken up by, uh, you know, sort of episodes of, 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 of lesser, in my opinion, work. But, but yeah, he is... He's prolific. Everybody can find one Woody Allen movie that they will mm-hmm. really like if they can get past any preconceived note. If you know nothing about Woody Allen, and uh, then you know, good for you because you're going to be able to just jump right in anywhere. But uh, a movie like Bananas, when you're a kid, is just the most amazing Fun rapid so. fire. It's 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 a Marx Brothers movie with he's he's all three of the Marx Brothers. Yeah. Yeah, then, right. then you see something a little more challenging. Oh, he does challenge himself. Yeah, I mean, time. people will say that a lot of the films are the same, but they're not. I mean, well, he uses elements from his films in in other films, but to say that Midnight in Paris and Manhattan are the same film because there's a there's a writer who wants to be a novelist. I mean, it's similar, but it's not the same. I just want to mention when I watched An Irrational Man. I like the movie, except it doesn't have a lot of suspense in it, and it doesn't have a – the story falls apart in some places. And it occurred to me that rather than the story being the most important part to Woody Allen, it's the character interactions that matter. It's If you look at the characters in the Woody Allen films, they're always brilliant character interactions. Annie Hall, Manhattan, uh, Match Point, all those are brilliant character interactions. None of them are great stories necessarily. They can be, but they're not necessarily. He's not interested in that. He's interested in what happens between a man and a woman, what happens between two men who are after the same woman. That's his focus, and that always seems to be what he's, what's most important to him. So as I watch more Woody Allen films, I'm going to look for that as opposed to trying to make sense of the story, which I don't think he cares that much about. We are going to talk about this week in film. Uh, Mary Claire has a couple of really interesting uh, tidbits on what's going on. Or yeah, this so, month in film. Yeah, like this said, month in whatever. film. So I think um, one of the, we'll touch on a few things, but, um, but we'll start with The Wire, which premiered 15 years ago this week. And I think The Wire, it's debated sometimes, but, you know, one of the best shows ever brilliant, made. Brilliant, um, brilliant. And, um, and now it's near, you know, universally held up as one of those brilliant dramas of sort of the contemporary era. You know, it was sort of a foundational show and sort of the TV's new golden age. And it's took one of the most, like, basic forms of television drama, the cop show, and turned that lens into, you know, a more broad-ranging examination of institutional bias, systemic power structures, and then the characters within them. And so it was created by David Simon um, and Ed Burns, the creators of the show, and they um, had sort of an investigative journalistic background. You know, were both authors and, um, and had experienced the atrocities, you know, in the Baltimore sector and wanted to tell those stories, but sort of in a new way. And it's similar, 
a little bit in terms of maybe you were touching on for top of the lake where it's, you know, we're not sure where this is going or where it's going to end up, but it's kind of about how we got there and the stories, uh, you know, sort of in the first place. Um, and so a really unique show. Are you guys fans? Have you seen? Love the wire. <laughs> uh, absolutely the best show ever, in, ever written for television. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Um, I've never seen <laughs> any did Part. I just snort? Sorry. You, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Please leave. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but if you'd like to tell me what an idiot I am, please you are, please, uh, well, please call in. You're it's, just going to kick yourself for not watching, no, for I, not seeing it. I have a list. Um, uh, you know, and and put this on the top. I will, but you see, I will watch. I will watch the wire, but I will watch all of it all at once. I don't know that that's the best idea. Honestly, they're so intensive. After you watch the first season, you just want to take a breath. It's really, really intense. I mean, it's like Breaking Bad in that sense as well, and that's probably the other show that people mm. compare it to in terms of being, you know, one of the best in television. It's All like... right, I'm going to go ahead and say this. <laughs> I never really saw any of Breaking Bad either. Oh my! I'm sorry, what uh, are you doing here? I did see the first. I did see the fr- most of the first episode, and uh, what? Um, but I, I, it's it's on that list. <laughs> All right. Sounds like a good list. Um, <laughs> let's, it's a good list. Let's try to let's try to overcome the shock that we were just presented with. But um, but sort of on the flip side, uh, also this week was the series finale of The Sopranos, mm. um, which has been ten years, and I can't believe it's been ten years. Neither I was surprised when I re- saw that number. I was like, really? Um, and that episode, you know, sort of a momentous final scene, which people are still sort of arguing about, um, you know, since the the overall premiere of the the series finale. But it really seems not possible that an entire decade has passed but um but yeah and so that was a show that was created by david chase who was an american writer and he had been in television for a long Long time time. um and it had some moderate success you know he had produced and written shows for like the rockford files northern exposures he had some original series and he had a fair amount of emmys um you know prior to that but didn't have maybe the flash associated with the show um like the sopranos and so when that premiered um and he really i mean he's attributed to over 30 episodes whether writing directing um or having sort of a final say over the story like he was integral in terms of every single (laughs) uh you know season story arc etc um so the showrunner for that as well but um i totally loved every bit of the sopranos and i i'm okay with the ending even if i don't know what it means or if i have my difference of opinion with but i love that show toby I'm going to go ahead and mention that I also <laughs> never, never seen. I, I did watch one episode of The Sopranos, but The Sopranos, perhaps more than uh, The Wire, is a show that suffers from its fan base. I didn't see the first episode of The Sopranos. And then you talk to somebody, and they can't believe you didn't see the first episode of The Sopranos. What are you, an idiot? I thought you. And then you're just like, well, I'm going to give that a wide berth. So. Uh, at some point in my in my future, I will be watching a a lot of The Wire, uh, a lot of Breaking Bad, a good amount of The Sopranos, but but it hasn't actually t- happened yet. Knowing your taste, um, I, for what I do know of it, I'd say The Wire would would more skew to your sensibilities, but they're all brilliant. Uh, all that were mentioned are just brilliant television, just brilliant writing, not television. I mean, those are the shows that are credited with, you know, that's Changing. when we started talking about that golden age of mm-hmm. television. It was those shows, which is why, you know, largely the shows that came after that were some of the creative teams and everything. I jumped on board because, you know, uh, Better Call Saul, Mad Men, uh, Matthew uh, Wiener, Wiener mm-hmm. was was from Sopranos. So that, right. that, 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 you know, I, I, I'm like... Uh, 
you know, <laughs> I'm like a fan of that, that band's second album. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> the first album was the one that got all the awards. I'm the sophomore <laughs> slump guy, but um, yeah. But are there any other uh, this this week in movie history you want to talk about? Um, I mean, I wanted to focus on those two. There was one other. I mean, there are a few other things sort of floating around. Um, Predator had its 35th anniversary. I've never seen that movie, which is why I didn't it's want to talk about movie. it. But um, um, but that was who that was Jim and John Thomas yeah. who wrote that, and they've done a number. I mean, they've consistently worked over the years. Their their sensibilities are really really interesting. I, I like for action, Predator especially lot, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna roll into what are we writing. What are we writing? What are we writing? Mary Claire, are you doing any writing? Um, I'm doing a bit of writing. I am a part of the workshop, obviously, of Mark's, but also just recently joined another writing group um, or sort of dropped in to see what that would be like. Um, and we've talked a little bit about collaboration and, um, and reading scripts and being a little bit more focused when it comes to you know, our specific writing and how to answer questions um, you know, with maybe a smaller audience, but, um, so I'm uh, dabbling and cl- collaborating with a few people. Um, it hasn't gone very far yet. Um, so I've written maybe like seven pages and still trying to figure out, you know, how to mesh, you know, two sort of writing styles and story styles. And, and so still kind of at the front of that. Okay. Tobe, are you writing? I am. What are you working on? I want to come back to what Mary Claire said in a minute, but I'll tell you what I'm working on after uh, my thorough dressing down in last week's show. Uh, We had a holiday weekend. I had a little time to myself, uh, so I decided to be very selfish. I grabbed my laptop, went to uh, my secret writing spot. It's a coffee shop. Starbucks. (laughs) Coffee bean. Well, I'm not telling you which one, so it's still a secret. (laughs) But uh, And I wrote almost an entire spec episode of doctor who wow uh which has been it's it's a story that's been kicking around in my head for a really long time and so i thought i would do it as more of a a workout for the muscles is doctor who an hour yeah it's an hour-long show it's about 45 minutes of actual episode (laughs) originally the show used to be multi-episodic shorter episodes long time ago and uh, so e- each each story was usually about two hours. Oh, okay. And now they squeeze it all into 45 minutes, which has mixed results. I sat down, I wrote this. It's almost all dialogue. It's definitely a very rough first draft, but it's a... It was great to sit down and do it, and a lot of the stuff so good. I talked about, it's fantastic. It's the greatest thing you, you're never going to read, uh, but it's... Um, Why aren't we going to read it? Well, that does actually bring up an interesting question. Come back to the workshop. You're not a fan of Doctor Who, no. right? As uh, and and this hopefully has interest to the, the listener. If you're working on something that's specific to a genre or specific to a TV show, and you're involved in some sort of workshop, as you both are, um, how do you get good critique if it's very much in a in a a, a pigeonhole that, that that somebody might not well, be familiar. Well, especially in a universe that's so big, like how much information do you need to know to read your spec script to even understand it? Well, that's what I'm, that's sort of what I'm asking. In your opinion, if I give you something and you're not familiar with it, is that going to be something that you're distracting? Is it on the writer to infuse enough of that information? You know, in comic books, uh, especially the Marvel comic books, if someone made a reference that was outside of the scope of that particular issue, there'd be a little editor's note at the bottom that would say, like, from Fantastic Four, right. number 16. Um, you can't really do that with a script or a screenplay. Well, the, the answer, the really easy answer to that is you write, you're writing toward a market that understands your work. 
So you may be in a workshop or a situation where somebody doesn't, like if I've never seen any Doctor Who, I still know culturally who he is. And I might ask you in the context of the critique, why did you choose to give him an atomic screwdriver? And you'll respond to that by saying, that's part of the show. And I'll accept that. And that's usually what happens in a workshop. The other thing is, is I always tell my students, if you're not a fan of a genre, like if you don't like science fiction, you don't like horror, make sure you predicate your critique with saying, I'm not a fan of this genre, and then do your critique, or just just demur, just say, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say about this because I don't like it. Typically, even if somebody doesn't watch a show, they're aware culturally of the show because something like Doctor Who has been going on for, what, 20 years or something? Longer? 50, longer, yeah, 50 years. How long? 50 years. 50 years? <laughs> it took a break, but 50 years. Holy crap. Uh, anyway, uh, but the point is, is I know who it is. I understand the character. I know he has a companion. I've actually seen a couple of the episodes. Um, so so I, would be, I, would be, I wouldn't be as good a critiquer as yourself who knows all the ins and outs of it, but I certainly would be. And some of the, most of the problems that occur in a script are not about the specific show. In other words, they're, they're more like the character is, seems stupid or the dialogue doesn't work or, I mean, what do we get in, in work? Yeah, I mean, I think that those are easy things. to Even just like, is, what's the story of this episode? What's this character's arc? Um, so those are easy things, you know, for in a workshop where a writer can point out that there are specific problems maybe with your structure or something like that. But yeah, when it comes to the, the actual universe, like it may be more helpful to speak with somebody that's, you know, has an in it and understands, you know, what this character is like and why they're making sort of this choice or, you know, what the history is with these two, two specific characters. Because um, you may get questions about that from, from a workshop, but I think from just a story perspective, perspective that's where we could help. Well, the, the other thing is I ask uh, everybody in the, in the intermediate advanced workshop to, to give us a, a small synopsis if, if, it's, if it's been a while since we've seen the work or if it's something has changed, so... There's always ways around it. It's not. So, it's so not that big of a deal. If you were talking, if when you're approached by an aspiring writer of some kind, they want to work on some sort of writing sample, would you recommend that they they work on a, an original piece, or if they want to work on something that's spec, do you, would you recommend that they go for something very mainstream? What 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 would be? I mean, everyone's looking for a shortcut. They're looking for the the the, the, the best way to succeed. So they're not going to write necessarily for a show that's no longer on the air. But but what, what do you think are the pitfalls of, of writing specific well, you, spec? You don't write for a show that's no longer on the air. Nobody gives a shit. And so it doesn't matter how brilliant it is, nobody will read it. it and that changes. Uh, it used to be that you wrote spec and you turned in a spec script so people could see what you what you were capable of. In other words, you created your own universe, you created your own pilot. Then it switched to write an episode of whatever, the Breaking Bad or something, and not switch back to spec again. So if you're going for uh, – I, I, I always think it's better to write spec to show people what you're creatively uh, capable of as opposed to – but if you're going for a specific show, obviously you write, a, you write, a epi- write an episode of that show. So if it's a generic, I'm sending it to an agent to see my writing, send an original. If it's I'm sending this to an agent to get me on, um, you know, name a show, whatever – uh, then send a spec, send a um, an episodic, uh, an episode version of it. And when I've done that in the past, what I've done is I've not, I've not gone down the current timeline. In other words, if there's a timeline to a, a long form narrative, I'm not writing an episode that necessarily takes place in that timeline. I will write a a tangential episode. Um, 
something that they can just see where my creativity is, but but I can't predict where the show's going to go or who's going to read what when. So I would look like a total idiot if I killed off a character that then stays alive. If I'm if we're sure a character's going to die, and you write that character, you look like an idiot. So I just I try to take either a, a minor character or a minor part of the storyline and spin that into my own tale so that I can show both how creative I am but also that I can write to that show. If you're going to write an episode of a show, make sure you're following their exact format. Make sure you're writing all the act breaks that they put in there. So if they have, like the X-Files used to have a one-minute teaser, you would have to write that teaser, then you'd have your break, and then you'd come back for your act one. You want to put exactly those. But if you're writing your own thing, there is no format. You write whatever you want. So... Um, Good question, though. Uh, and actually, it brings up another question uh, MC brought up. You're working uh, with, uh, in, a, in a new workshop, you're working mm-hmm. on a collaboration situation. What, what are some of the, and obviously I don't want you to get anybody in trouble, but what, what kind of uh, pitfalls are you, are you encountering or, or, or benefits? What are, what are the advantages? Yeah, and and I, was, I was interested in collaborating. Sometimes I have, you know, I, I really like to write, obviously, but a lot of times have a hard time thinking through a complete story um and so wanted to work with somebody that had you know a story in mind that i could maybe insert myself uh and use their script to work off of and so working with yeah another colleague uh on his script and i think some of the pitfalls i mean a lot of times it's just your style like we have pretty different styles overall so it's trying to come together and figure out you know how our styles again are going to mesh together overall whose tone maybe is better for, you know, for, you know, certain scenes or obviously the entire script as well. And so just trying to figure out, yeah, how that that's going to work. And so whether it's I'm going to write five pages, you're going to write five, and then we'll try to, uh, you know, we're sort of in the, the midst of figuring out what's going to work best for us overall. Uh, and then we have different ideas, you know, about how the, the story should be told or how each character should maybe play out. So those are all questions that we're sort of trying to answer at the moment, but um, but it's good. I mean, it's it's helpful for me to bounce my ideas off other people. It's helpful um, to have you know a full and complete story in front of me um, and and the structure behind it as well. So we're moving towards certain points in the story, uh, his story more so. But I'm I'm here to help you know flesh them out you know for for places that he's having you know struggling with too because it's his story. But I think he's a little bit in his way in terms of um, you know his specific writing and um, and it's maybe not clear to the audience and so. So, yeah, so it's kind of a jumble, but um, but those are things that we're kind of working through. And, and I think important in collaboration is there has to be one person who says yes or no to an idea that's where you're split. So um, if you're writing somebody else's, working with somebody else who came up with the idea, they typically are in charge, and they're going to decide if it comes down to a decision of should I, can we do this or that? That's the person that should be. And you should agree on that before you start the collaboration. If not, you're going to come to loggerheads at some point, and and you're going to come to bad feelings. So make that decision. If you're going to collaborate, make it it initially and then stick with it. And then honor the writing collaboration in in that case. Make your case for, I think it's better this way, but certainly don't fight with the person that you're collaborating with. I've collaborated with directors and writers. And directors are much easier to work with, oddly enough, um, than writers because they have they have opinions, but they're visual opinions, as opposed to to the story. They let you do the language; they do the the other stuff. So, well, that's interesting. I think we've we've organically kind of lapsed into now uh, ask a screenwriter. So, um, Mary Claire, yeah, why don't I have you go a few ahead? Questions and... here. Um, how do you create a great character? Should I write a bio? I'm not a fan of writing bios. But I am a fan of knowing the backstory to a character's ghost. In other words, what drives the character when we open the story? 
So if that requires you to do a bio, do a bio. If my point about bios is it's writing that you should be doing on your script as opposed to doing in the background uh, on your character because your characters, most of them, I I would bet that Woody Allen – you know, wrote a thousand characters and never really sat down and wrote a bio of any of them. He just made it. He just came up with a, uh, an idea and went around and went toward it. And as far as writing a, a great character, to me, the most important part of any character is what has shaped them up to that point. And so that goes to the ghost, that goes to the background. And if you have a, uh, a sense of where that character is when the story opens and why he is or she is, why they are at that point, then you're gonna, your character will speak with that veracity. Uh, I did. Uh, I have a class at Irvine Valley College that you can access through either 123getsmart.com or uh, scriptwritingclasses.org or marksevy.com. There's a whole bunch of places to find me. Um, and he was writing a character who had PTSD, but she had PTSD because she got her arm cut off, which certainly, in torture, which certainly would lead to that character being in that place. But I told him to go further back. Why is she? Why is that? Why does that bother her? I mean, is it is it because of just the physical trauma, or does she did she have emotional trauma? Was she out of control? I mean, it was a woman, female character. So was she abused during that? I mean, there's and then we got into the idea of of uh, rape. Uh, one of the fem- one of the women at the table brought up the idea that maybe she was raped during the torture, and I said I don't know that that's necessary, but certainly the demeaning nature of something like that would be difficult to handle. So I think going back as far as you need to go, but also don't grab at the easy solutions. PTSD is an easy solution. Oh, she's got PTSD, so that's the way she is. No, she was a certain way before the PTSD, and that led to her becoming susceptible to the PTSD. So do as much background as you need, and then move on. That's okay. funny. Actually, that brings up a good question, um, which uh, I don't have the name of who sent it to us, but they asked about about background. How how long should I do research? Boy, that's a hard question to answer. I'm still doing research on my Revolutionary War script. So I started uh, about three months ago, and I started doing research, and then I started writing. But every time I come to a scene, like, for instance, I didn't know how – did I mention this? I can't remember if it was in class or here – how a character – I have a character, a scene where a character gets his leg cut off. It's amputated. And at the time, there was no anesthetic. And so they're just cutting his leg off while he's awake, while he's wide awake. And the nurse, who's a main character, has to stem the, the flow of blood. And I wasn't quite sure how they would do that. And, of course, it came to me that it was cauterization. But then if you don't know that, you have to do the research. You have to go back into the idea of what's happening and say, okay, now I need to see – I mean – Maybe some people don't even know that there wasn't anesthetic in 1776. I, I don't know. You know, So you, you do that research ongoing. You do that research initially to get your story, and then you do that research, as far as I'm concerned, ongoing. Um, so I, I think it, research is important, but it can also get in the way of writing. It can. Yeah. <laughs> That's my problem because I tend to over-research pretty much everything, even for the Bayou script that I'm writing. I've watched like so many YouTube videos on crawfish boils. <laughs> At a certain point, I was like, this is not helpful anymore. But um, Because you do want it to inform kind of every aspect of your script. But there is a, a moment where you have to be like, it's going to be the story that does that. <laughs> and the well, characters. And if you're writing about modern day, the modern day world, you don't have to research what a car is and what a phone is and all that stuff. But if you're writing about a period 300 years ago or 200 years ago, obviously... And, and language is even the least part of that because it's more about how did they get from point A to point B? How did they process – what did they eat during the winter time? You know, all those things. And it may not ever come, 
come to fruition. You may not ever use it, but you need to know it. You need to have it in your what I call your mentabulary. It has to be part of who you are as a writer because you're informing your characters with that information. So I think each, uh, each script has its own different level. But certainly if you're not sure where, who or what or where or why, continue to do the research until something jumps out at you. And that's why workshops are so valuable because you get a wide range of knowledge. And, and even if somebody says... Well, I don't know if psychopath was used, but it sounds wrong. You may not be keen to that until somebody says it. And that's, to me, what the biggest value of any workshop is. We had a situation where one of my students was writing a story about a, a gun that fired in outer space. And I said, there's no air in outer space. How could that gun possibly fire? Well, you know, I went home and I researched it. And it turns out they, they, built, they pack oxygen into every bullet. So they don't need uh, air. It, doesn't, it brings its own air with the uh, combustion. So... Uh, but that's something that I would have never known. It's also refreshing to know that as, as we began to explore space, somebody said, hey, we might need a gun. <laughs> what about a flag and a handshake? No, work on the gun. We got the flag. These were Marines, and they needed their guns. So. <laughs> um, uh, well, we have a viewer question, uh, or a listener question, I should say, um, from Aaron that we're going to play now. All right. Hi, my name is uh, Aaron Musa Zahab, and I'm a beginning screenwriter. My question is simply this. What is the biggest challenge for beginning screenwriters in this day and age? Well, that's my question. Thank you. Aaron, that's a great question. The, in my opinion, the hardest thing that a screen, any screenwriter does is just sit down and write. And I know that's a, that's a kind of a, a glib answer, but it is true because we can have all these great aspirations, connections, talent, uh, and if you don't just sit down and write, you're never going to become a screenwriter. And that actually dovetails into my warm and fuzzy fireside chat, which I'm going to rant and rave at you people. Um, but it, 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 to me, that's the hardest part of it. Once you finish a script, uh, of course, the hardest part is getting somebody to read it and rising above the noise, uh, making sure that it gets read. But um, there's plenty of things that are difficult about screenwriting, but honest to God, the hardest thing to do is to just sit down and write. Now, it, it, just for clarification, when you say sit down and write, are you talking about the physical act of uh, fingers on a keyboard or, or pen to legal pad? Do you mean the writing within that screenplay format or just the, 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 the process, process itself that process. may involve notes and, and that kind of thing? So it's, it's, but it's a physical act. Like, I like to think that when I'm stuck in traffic and I'm working out dialogue out loud, is that writing or is that just what you're doing so you don't go crazy? No, I, but I, the thing is, is we can get distracted. I mean, the actual physical, you can't diminish the physical act of sitting down and actually typing on the keyboard because we, we come up with a lot of excuses not to write. And so you could say, well, i got to watch this movie because it's similar to mine and I want to see where it is. And then, then the next day is, well, I didn't get a chance to write yesterday and I won't today because I have to do some more research or I have to talk to somebody about this. I mean, there's a lot of reasons not to write. So I don't think you can diminish the fact of putting your butt down, but I also think that the, the process is what I'm talking about. And, and again, that is part of what I say in my fireside chat here is, you know, you just have to you have to immerse yourself in order to be a any kind of writer. Period. Immersion is what I'm looking for. Process. Immersion. Writing. And again, Aaron, thanks for that question. Uh, if you have a question you'd like to ask a screenwriter, you can give us a call at nine one nine scripts. 
That's, or leave a comment on plotpoints.com. That's right. You have, you have two places you can go for that. You can leave a comment on any of the blog posts, and you can also, there's a contact form on there that comes to me and Toby and Mary Claire. And again, just to reinstate, we brought it up in the first episode. Don't send us your script. Uh, Mark cannot legally read it, and uh, Mary Claire and I don't want to. So uh, if you have a question, uh, please let us know. If you've got a screenplay that you think is going to make a million dollars um and i can pull your name off it go ahead (laughs) but uh otherwise uh let's move on all right so this week i'm going to talk a little bit about uh i've in the past few podcasts i've profiled two really prolific successful and celebrated writers both have this one thing in common as do most successful writers they put their asses in a seat and wrote until they were exhausted and did that over and over again i originally moved to california to continue my musical career I figured if I was going to starve, I would want to do it in a warm climate. At the time, I dreamed of being a studio musician, one of those men and women who walk into a studio, lay down a perfect riff, and do that over and over again exactly the same way. To me, that was the height of being a musician. I abandoned music for a few reasons, including that I actually couldn't eat or pay rent at the time and had no car to transport my keyboard standing auditions or gigs. I mean, try getting on a bus with a 100-pound electric piano and amp. But I never forgot the desire to be at the top of the musical pyramid. When I became a writer, I took that attitude to heart and wrote nonstop for three years. Then I sold something, and then I didn't sell anything for another year, and then I sold something for ten times less than my first script. And still I wrote every day, and still I write every day I can. So far, that's led to 30 scripts sold and 19 movies made. I've told my students over and over again, even if you saw that dream project, it's only a first step. There's many more steps to take, hopefully good ones. But there's a truth here that's inescapable. Even after Woody Allen won his first Oscar and Rod Serling won his first Emmy, the ultimate achievements in their fields, the next day they were still doing the same thing they did the day before, they wrote. Unless you're Harper Lee who published To Kill a Mockingbird and seemingly nothing else for decades, your job doesn't end after you finish a script or sell something or win an award. You still have to write, which brings me to my main point, focus. If you want to do this writing thing, you must focus directly on that goal. Like a script, everything must point to your ending, and that ending must involve your main character all the way through because that is who we focus on. In this scenario, your ending is your writing goals, and the main character is you. I had a student once who was writing a great script about the Army, an active Army captain herself, her writing smacked of veracity and solid scenes. Plus, she was passionate about her work, all around great news for any teacher. The only thing she seemed not to be able to get right was her main character. We'd workshop her script, and i ask, who's your main character? Sheckman, she'd respond. I'd then say, okay, you have to deal more with Sheckman. He will be your audience's focus throughout the story. This went on for a few weeks, a few classes. Who's your main character? Sheckman. Okay, focus on Sheckman. Put him in more scenes. Make it clear that's who we're following, Sheckman, right? Sheckman. Finally, one class I'd had it, and out of frustration, I slammed my hand down on the desk, and I shouted to her, Sheckman, Sheckman, Sheckman! To the open mouths and sun silence of my class, I sheepishly said sorry, and we continued. But the point is valid. What is really your focus? If you were attempting to climb a mountain, swim a channel, or simply learn how to play a musical instrument, you'd train every day. You'd eat accordingly, think in terms of a schedule, immerse yourself in that activity. Runners buy the shoes they need. Carbo-load do the activities that bring them better knowledge and results. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, the founders of Apple, were passionate every moment about computers. Still in high school, Bill Gates, who started Microsoft, would hurry after school to his local college to program mainframes. Every day, every night, every moment, thinking, learning, doing, focusing on their dream. 
Writing is no different. In order to become a professional writer, to scale and peak in any journey and beyond, you need the discipline, you need the discipline to write every chance you get. I know a lot of my students write the night before their workshop submission is due. This couldn't be more wrong. If you're not plunking down a few pages every night or making notes, or at least thinking about your script, it will be difficult at best for you to succeed. No music, beginning musician in the world picks up an instrument the night before a gig and tries to learn how to finger a C-sharp diminished seventh chord. In order to be seamless, you need to practice. Eddie Van Halen famously worked his guitar riffs endlessly even after he was a success. Contestants who wow the judges on The Voice or America's Got Talent usually have years of performances at county fairs and local recitals in addition to hours and hours of private practice. And it doesn't take genius or savantism. As Thomas Edison said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. As the old joke goes, a tourist asks a local, excuse me, but how do I get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice is the response. How do you become a professional screenwriter? Shekman, Shekman, Shekman. In other words, focus. All right. Thank you, Mark. Well, it's about that time again. The Plot Points Podcast comes to an end. Thanks for listening. If you're listening to us through the iTunes store, please write us a review. It really helps us get some notice and some attention. Also, let us know what you'd like to hear more about. Obviously, your questions and comments are very important to us because uh, we already know everything. We can just sit here and talk about that all day. On behalf of MC and Mark Sevy, and I'm Toby Walwork. And remember, be the Sheckman in your story. And we'll see you next time. 